In this episode of Influencers, Wharton School Dean Erica James. The decisions made by Wharton alumni are really driving a lot of what's happening in the world financially. What we don't pay attention to is the fact that the next one is always going to happen. It may be a different kind of crisis or threat or challenge, but something else is always going to happen. One of the things that we have to do at Wharton is help our students prepare for operating in an environment of uncertainty and, and ambiguity. Hello everyone and welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer and welcome to our guest Erica James, Dean of the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and author, co-author I should say, of the new book along with Lynn Perry Wooten, The Prepared Leader. It's so great to see you, Erica. Great to see you. And thank you for having us here in your office at Wharton. My pleasure. So um, I'm sure most people have heard of Wharton, but why don't you give us sort of a pricey about the school, undergraduate, graduate, how many students, et cetera. So Wharton is the world's first collegiate business school. So we were founded in 1881 by Joseph Wharton. Uh, initially only had undergraduates, but soon added MBA students, executive MBA students. We have the world's largest doctoral program for business school students. And um, so we run the whole gamut. And we have non-degree programming also for executives who don't want the degree but need short uh, bits of information. And then we serve a lot of high school students. Right, and so maybe it's hard to quantify exactly how many students there are given the executives and the undergraduates and graduates, but? Of our degree students, we have almost 5,000, and then we have tens of thousands more that we reach who are non-degree students. Great. You came here a little more than two years ago from Emory University, mm -hmm. the Gozueta School, which I know well. Yes. Um, and tell me what's happened since then. You had COVID, <laughs> you had just a lot of stuff to navigate your way through. Right, so I, I think of year one, which for me was 2020-2021, academic year, as the year of crisis management, hence the book. Um, because I started three months after COVID hit, uh, I started here virtually, I moved into an apartment, was trying to run a school with people that I had never met and only ever seeing anyone on those small screens. Uh, so it was a lot of how do we transition from a residential academic experience to a virtual one. That meant preparing our faculty, it meant preparing our, our content in different ways. Year two was me taking stock of what I'd learned about the school in that virtual environment, identifying who the people were who had the kind of leadership skills and who had the value system that I was looking to form as part of a team and put that foundation in place. And then uh, start to identify some of the priorities of the school moving forward. And now year three is about executing. So Wharton is one of the best business schools in the world. There are also a lot of other great business schools like HBS, like Stanford, Columbia, et cetera. What makes Wharton different from those other schools, Erica? One of the key differences is what your first question alluded to, and that is we service so many more students, not in terms of volume, but in terms of uh, where students are, where learners are in their career trajectory. So we're of the group that you mentioned, we're the only one that has an undergraduate business program. And so that means we're able to take experiences and lessons and insights and perspectives from servicing that population that informs how we think about our MBA population. We also have, again, a very extensive doctoral program, much larger than some of the other schools that you identified, which means that the caliber of the 
the caliber and the volume of our scholarship with our faculty working with doctoral students is just quite extensive and so that is what informs what goes into the classroom that informs how we speak to executives and advise its executives so I think the scale and the breadth of what we do is very um, is a key differentiator for us talk about that uh, link to executives and the private sector and CEOs what is that like and how does that work at Warden so what has been fun is to observe the kinds of connections that our faculty have with so many senior leaders around the world. Uh, our research is born from access to data and access to information from people who are actually in these companies making real life-changing decisions. So the more we can stay connected to uh, those leaders, the more we have access to do the data and the analysis that will then inform how we feedback, what we feedback to them in terms of their own decision making. Is there any way to generalize about what they're telling you right now about the economy, the job market, what's going on in the world globally with the financial markets? I would say that the most common theme is uncertainty, right? Everything is changing and we started to see that. I think the pandemic allowed all of us to be very sensitive to a lack of certainty that exists in the world and needing to still operate despite that ambiguity. So whether you're talking about the economy, whether you're talking about reactions to health issues and, and COVID, uh, whether you're talking about the labor market, all of those things are just in flux right now. And so one of the things that we have to do at, at Wharton is help our students prepare for operating in an environment of uncertainty and, and ambiguity. What about, um markets and investing. Um, you know, Yahoo Finance, we're, we're keenly interested in that subject matter. How do you prepare students for careers in those fields? So, Wharton, as you likely know, has a long-standing reputation for being known, being known as the finance school. And deservedly so. That has been a core academic strength of uh, the school for a number of years. And we have placed people in very prominent uh, banks and now private equity and, and other financial institutions, considerably so that the decisions made by Wharton alumni are really driving a lot of what's happening in the world financially. So I think um, as we've also seen a greater focus on ESG, Wharton is also leveraging our own research and scholarship to inform what are the financial implications and how do we inform um, financial decision making around the elements of environmental sustainability, around social matters, and around governance matters. So that's again another way in which um, our expertise in finance is now propelling insights into a phenomena that's just become a, a worldwide focus on ESG. Oh, so it's sort of marrying ESG with finance. I know you have famous professors in that area as well, like Jeremy Siegel is someone that our audience knows very, very well. And I don't know if you want to list or name some of the other professors because all your children are above average and you don't want to single any of them out, right? The, the, that is true, and I would uh -huh. hate to accidentally forget anyone. Right. So we'll um, leave the names aside. But we have a tremendous, tremendous depth of faculty in our finance world for sure, and then more broadly across management, across marketing operations, et cetera. What are some of the newer areas that you mentioned ESG, but are there other sort of areas that people don't think of when they think of business schools that maybe you guys are tackling? A couple of issues. One is healthcare. So we're one of the only business schools that has, actually has a significant healthcare management department. And that group is focusing on 
all sorts of matters, health policy, health equity issues, and you don't typically see that. We also have a number of faculty who are doing work in sustainability and climate change, which you wouldn't necessarily ascribe to a business school. And we also have a legal studies department as a part of our core areas of focus for, for Wharton. Um, so looking at the legal matters and thinking about governance concerns in the context of uh, business issues. So I think those are areas that Wharton really oftentimes doesn't get a lot of credit for, but it really is a part of the overall portfolio of offering that we have for students. Right. Let's talk about your book a little bit. The Prepared Leader, I'm looking at behind you, and I'm looking at the subtitle, Emerge from Any Crisis, it sounds like you committed to memory, not surprisingly. <laughs> I hope so. More resilient than before. <laughs> um, so there, this is a book about leadership. There are other books about leadership, though, Erica. What's different about yours, and what, what do you have to say? So this is really a continuation of the research that my co-author, Lynn Wooten, and I have been doing for a number of years, wanting to better understand how leaders can successfully navigate threats and challenges in their organization, so much so that the threat elevates to a crisis. And oftentimes when we think about crisis management and even crisis leadership, we're looking at the activities that happen once an event has happened and how do you respond or react to it, which for me is an important and necessary component of leadership, but it's an inadequate, insufficient component. Because what leaders also need to do is understand how to anticipate, understand how to identify the vulnerabilities in their organization, and help them uh, prepare for things relative to where they see vulnerabilities. And if we're not paying attention to the pre-crisis mm -hmm. responsibilities, then we're not fully embracing all of the leadership goals. Similarly, I would say on the back end, if a crisis does happen, and let's say you navigate it successfully, how many times have we heard in this pandemic, oh, I'm glad that's over so now we can get back to normal. Well, if that's the goal for leaders to get their organizations back to normal, then they're gonna be behind the eight ball when it comes to a whole host of other things because while other companies, pandemic notwithstanding because everyone experienced crisis there, but for other crises, if leaders are focused on getting back to the way things were, their counterparts, their, their uh, competitors who were not in a crisis have, continuing, have been continuing to run their trajectory uh, and we're now looking to go back. So mm. leadership really is about paying attention to what is happening to prevent and mitigate crises, responding effectively if something does happen, and then how do you learn from mm -hmm. in the back end so that you can actually realize those proverbial opportunities from the crisis. I want to drill down into that first point, which is the preemptive part that mm -hmm. you talked about. So it seems like that you're talking about anticipating black swans, mm -hmm. which, you know, the pandemic was the, the giant one, right? I mean, no one anticipated, even though we probably should have. We've listened to Bill Gates, et cetera, right? et cetera. That's exactly right. Um, so, but, but how do you sort of by definition, I mean, it's the Donald Rumsfeld unknown unknowns, right? Mm -hmm. And how do you anticipate that or prepare an organization safe or something like that. So in the book we talk about this cycle called uh, panic and neglect. So what typically happens is some threat happens. We panic, we respond, it's over, and then we neglect it until the next one happens. And what we don't pay attention to is the fact that the next one is always going to happen. It may be a different kind of crisis or threat or challenge, but something else is always going to happen that takes us by surprise. So the preparation part 
is not letting those lessons from prior experiences, whether we experience them personally or whether we've seen our, our competitors go through something, that could have just as easily been us. And going through a set of reflective exercises to ask ourselves, if that had been us, what would we have done differently? What can we learn? How should we establish our culture and our processes and our systems and our operations in a manner to uh, avoid that experience going forward? But oftentimes we don't take the opportunity to learn either from our own prior experiences or from the experiences of others. But when we do, that can then inform and help us prevent a future crisis. It sounds like you're leaning on your training as an organizational psychologist a little bit here, right? Of course. And, and I want to ask you about the second part, which is the, the learning from the experience, from the crisis. It sort of sounds a little bit like what Ari Emanuel said, don't let a good crisis go, go to, to waste. waste. Is it kind of like that? It is. It is exactly like that. Uh, and so if we don't take the time to say, what did we do well in managing this? What didn't we do well in managing this? And even more importantly, what role did we play in creating this problem? Because if we don't answer those questions, then we'll assume that everything just happens to us and we have no agency and we have no ability to control or mitigate or prevent um, something external from, from happening. So I think it's important to be really self-reflective, self being the organization, on the ways in which their own processes and procedures and structures and policies and norms are actually potentially contributing to, if not the crisis, their inability to respond to that crisis effectively. And you worked on this book with your school pal, right? I did. And, and so talk about that process a little bit, working with Lynn. So Lynn and I met in graduate school and have been collaborators and friends ever since. And so together we've sort of created this framework around crisis leadership and looking at different five phases of a crisis and trying to identify what are some of the core competencies that are necessary to effectively lead through those different phases. So writing this book, and I guess the other more personal point was that uh, we had started this book just a few months before COVID, before the pandemic hit, but then we both also assumed new leadership roles on the exact same day. So I started my job at Wharton on July 1st of 2020. She started a new role as president of Simmons University on July 1 of 2020. And so we found ourselves both having to navigate uh, leading our respective organizations through a crisis while also studying and writing about a crisis at the same time. So it was quite an iterative process to take our personal experiences and put it in the context of our research. That's kind of amazing. So I want to ask you more about um, being an organizational psychologist and looking at companies. Companies seem to go through life cycles, um, periods of growth, then cash cows, et cetera, but they decline. And some of that is cultural, right, Erica? And, and I'm wondering if you have thinking about that and how companies can mitigate cultural decline? It's a great question and it often has time, it has to do with leadership. Uh, cultures oftentimes shift when new leaders come in and recognizing what his or her priorities are for the organization and how those priorities are manifest through their values, through their policies, through their practices. But then if a new leader comes with something else and, and completely uproots what the prior leadership was focused on, then you're going to start to see sort of a, a challenge with stability in the culture. And while every new leader does have the right 
to um, put in place his or her own new ideas and initiatives. It really is about finding out what is core to the employee base in terms of how they will work together and what they value as an organization. And it's the leader's responsibility to ensure that in the context of his or her priorities, they're still engaging in behaviors that are consistent with the desired culture. Can you see signs when a new leader is coming in and neglecting that responsibility? Absolutely, and I would say, um, you know, as a psychologist, I recognize that there are people in the world who pay more or less attention to the people, uh, the human resources, the human capital that make up an organization. And when there is inadequate attention on uh, the human capital, then I think you'll start to see rifts in the culture and you'll start to see some um, problems that make it difficult to achieve your ultimate goal which is profitability and you know success and sustainability. And just one more follow-up on that. I wonder if that would be useful for investors to understand if there is an incipient decline, which would then further be reflected in decline in the stock price or the business, right? Could be, yeah, absolutely. Hmm. I, I, I haven't done that research, but it, it's an appropriate hypothesis. Maybe your next book. I think Maybe. it'll be a bestseller after this bestseller. <laughs> um, so coming back uh, to Wharton a little bit, and this is a question people have, not about Wharton, just about business school in general. Is an MBA worth it? So coming from a business school dean, I, of course, am going to say yes, it's right. worth it. Uh, but beyond that, you know, the data will show you that the return on investment for a degree in business is sort of outpaces most other degrees. So if that's your calculus, if that's your end goal is what, you know, was this investment worth it? Then I'd say the data is pretty clear that it is. But it's more than that. Uh, it's also recognition that a fundamental and deep understanding about the economy and about how organizations fundamentally work and about operationally how we should be pr pr proceeding in running businesses. That's what you get from an MBA degree. And in the absence of having that, if imagine if every company was run by engineers. There's real value that engineers add and certain companies sort of are, it's appropriate for them to be run by an engineer. But if there are people who are also looking at how organizations are sustained and how money flows within the organization and how to effectively manage people, which some might argue that engineers are less attuned to because it's not a part of their natural discipline, then whatever the product or technology that's being developed won't achieve its potential if you don't have that grounding. So I firmly believe that what we teach in a business school environment complements um, all of the other skills that other people might bring to their organization. Fascinating to hear what you just said about engineers. Um, <laughs> I'm married to one, so oh, okay, I, I okay. have a little bit of experience Come there. Come by it honestly then. <laughs> um, so how are How's the job market changing right now? Where are the MBAs going today versus, say, pre-pandemic? Yeah, so I can speak definitely from Wharton's perspective, mm -hmm. whereas before the number one employers or t industry that, that our students were going to was the finance industry. They were going to the banks. Uh, investment banking was the job. Now we're seeing many more of our students go into technology, go into private equity, go into um, it's still a smaller percentage, but entrepreneurship and engage in other kinds of uh, work that they're finding, that this generation of young people is finding fulfilling. And um, I talk with leaders of banks a lot to say, you know, perhaps thinking about what 
students are able to do when they come into your organization, thinking about the culture that you're creating, and does that culture align with what this, this generation of folks are looking for? Because if not, they're finding plenty of other alternatives. And so I think a lot of those companies are, are much more mindful of how to attract and retain the talent that are now have choice, and technology is a big driver of that choice. There's a lot of talk about new models when it comes to education, business school education included. I understand that you have a new hybrid EMBA uh, program. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, so we're calling it our Global Executive MBA program. And it is part of our traditional residential experience. Although one of the things that we learned through the pandemic is that there were markets of people, segments of the population that weren't being serviced by the structure that we had in terms of a residential program. So people with children, uh, people who had commitments that prevented them from being able to spend weeks at a time traveling to spend at our Wharton location, either here or in, in Philadelphia or in San Francisco. They would say, I can't get an MBA because I don't have the time, I don't have the flexibility in my job or in my personal life to make this viable. Well, now with this new global program, we are doing 25% of the coursework in person, 75% of it virtual, but it's virtual not in an asynchronous manner, but in a synchronous manner. So there is an actual live professor online with you for 75% of the, the content that's being delivered. And so that allows us to reach segments of the population who never thought this was a viable option for them. A few years ago, universities were setting up brick and mortar campuses overseas a lot. Has that waned? I think it has waned, yes. Uh, and we're finding other ways to establish our a presence in different parts of the world that doesn't require necessarily, or at least not unilaterally having your own brick and mortar institution. Mm -hmm. So a lot of partnerships and collaborations are being formed with institutions in other parts of the world or to US-based companies join, or schools joining forces to do something in other parts of the world. Our alliance with INSEAD would be a perfect example of that. Right. As a woman and a person of color, both firsts here at Wharton, is diversity a priority to you? And if so, how are you benchmarking it and how's it going? It is a priority, and it's a priority for me, but I also realized coming here early on that it was a priority for our students and for our faculty and for our staff as well. Now, remember the timing that I assumed this role was July of 2020, which was just on the heels of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and the conversation around race in particular in this company was just heightened at that time. So it gave me an opportunity to leverage what was happening in the world to better understand what we needed to be doing at the Wharton School. And we're launching something called the Coalition for Equity and Opportunity, which is a way to partner with different institutions and different people um, who also have value or, or want to see value by exploring ways of um, creating more access and equi equitable opportunity for folks uh, in the business realm, whether that's in healthcare, whether it's in education, whether it's in teaching for per, personal financial literacy, all of those areas, we can help do something about in collaboration with other institutions. A few questions about you, Erica. Um, you worked in the private sector, I believe, for American Express for a little bit. What made you switch over into academia? So I worked at American Express when I was still getting my dissertation, and I wanted to see what I might be missing out on if I pursued a career in academia as opposed to going the corporate route. And while it was a fantastic experience and 
fast-paced and you saw change happen quickly, uh, I realized that I had m far less control over the work that I would be doing than if I were in mm -hmm. academia. And I also realized that for me personally, I found great value in working with students and being able to shape how people were coming of age and what they learned about the world. And so for those reasons, I wanted to continue academia, but I actually said I would try it for a year. And if I didn't like it, I would go back. And one year led to five, led to 10, and 20 plus years in, I'm still, I'm still here and hopefully still adding value. You're on the board at Morgan Stanley, and I think SurveyMonkey as well, mm -hmm. but say at Morgan Stanley, what informs you from that experience that you can bring over here? What are you learning maybe from James Gorman? What's it like being on that side of things? It has been interesting to observe his leadership style, particularly in during a time of crisis, which is my area of research. Um, and it reinforced for me how much leadership actually does matter, and part of that is the clarity with which people are communicating to their stakeholders. Part of it is the decisiveness. Part of it is the willingness and ability to listen to different stakeholders, informing judgments and, and decisions. And I don't think that students fully appreciate those, what we've called softer skills of leadership, but I say they're the hardest things that we ever do. And being able to have credibility in saying, here you have a leader of one of the world's most prominent financial institutions in the world who's spending a lot of time listening, who's spending a lot of time understanding how to make effective decisions, and who's spending a lot of time focused on how are we going to communicate effectively. The, the core nuts and bolts of the financial industry, there are a lot of people working at Morgan Stanley who are advising him on how to do that. But there aren't as many people within that context who can really demonstrate the, the interpersonal leadership that a CEO does, and that's what I want to bring back to our students so that they begin to take more seriously early in their career their responsibilities for leadership. And SurveyMonkey, very different kind of company. Oh, I, I just realized maybe there's an Emory connection there too, right? There, there is an Emory mm -hmm. connection, so yeah. they're, uh, they're CEO, and SurveyMonkey changed its name recently, so it's now Momentive AI. Oh, I didn't know that. And, and mm. they, they, um, so Momentive AI is uh, their CEO is an Emory grad, and so mm -hmm. I met him yeah. when I was on the dean when I was the dean at the Goiswata Business School at Emory. And to compare and contrast the two companies, it's quite fascinating because you have a West Coast-based tech firm. It's not a startup; it's been around for twenty plus years, but it's still newer than Morgan Stanley. And compare how they experience the world and and what they're trying to achieve relative to a staid, tried and true you know, blue chip organization like like um, Morgan Stanley has been fascinating. And at Wharton, we have learners who, some of whom want that fast-paced entrepreneurial tech-based environment, and some of whom want that traditional investment-based financial services experience. And, and there's some similarities because governance is governance, but there are also some clear differences based on size and scope and longevity. What about your upbringing shaped you, do you think, Erica, in terms of preparing you for this role? I mean, no one thinks about when they're a little kid, but looking back, is there anything that sort of makes sense in terms of your trajectory? Yeah. So my stepdad was a psychologist, and prior to coming of age at a point where I could ask him questions about what does psychology mean, it would not have been a career that I would have pursued. So my undergraduate and PhD degrees are in organizational psychology. Um, so that clearly had an influence. But I also, my stepdad was 
white and Jewish, and my stepmother was white and Irish Catholic. So whichever household I was living in at the time that I was growing up, I was in an environment where I had to, where we were accustomed to difference, right? It was an interracial, interfaith-based family experience. And I think learning how to operate in that environment also helped me when I was in college and when I was pursuing my career, learn how to navigate across differences in ways that I don't think would have been as facile for me had I not had that sort of personal experience with my family dynamic. Mm, fascinating. And so, final question, what do you hope to accomplish here at Wharton, and then what do you hope to accomplish for Erica James in the future, here and maybe even beyond? The legacy question. Yes. <laughs> Never too early yeah, well. in life. Uh, for Wharton, I would say, how do we take the world's best business school and make it even more impactful? And to me, that is looking at what's happening in the world that needs attention and what role can a business education play in addressing some of those challenges. So right now we're looking at matters of sustainability and climate change. Those are worldly challenges. And Wharton has something to say about that. So making sure that we have the platform and, the, and are able to amplify um, our contribution to contribute to those challenges. So that's what I want for Wharton is to, to leverage its resources in ways to really make a positive difference. And for me, I'd like to continue to think that what I bring to the table and what I value makes a difference for the individuals within the Wharton context or whatever organization I'm a part of. Um, so I, as a psychologist, relationships matter to me and trusting relationships really matter. So I think what's important is that I leave a legacy that people pay attention to understanding and having empathy and being responsive and listening and using those interpersonal skills to advance the work of the organization. Erica James, Dean of Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Serwer.